Chapter 20 Learning to cook had opened up a whole new world within the little space plane. But even so, the food stores grew smaller and smaller during the Cold War months sitting in orbit. Guru and the ball club and team periodically checked in with Aldi about the state of her inventory, and she kept them updated while continually assuring them that she would indeed start to cut down portion sizes in order to save more calories for the future. She did little to actually follow through on this promise, but spoke urgently to Guru about it one night while unable to sleep. I won't have enough to eat for the trip home, she said anxiously. Unless I start eating only once per day, I don't think I can do that. I've been thinking about it for weeks, every day, every time I have a meal, and still I have not cut down. She stopped short from asking her secret question. Am I going to die here? She shivered under the blanket and coat, hugging her knees to her chest. It was a rare occasion for Guru not to have several solutions already lined up in answer to any problem, and this was one of them. She said simply, What can I do to help, Aldi? Aldi's face crumpled. If her main source of advice and wisdom could not stop her from eating, she would surely eat herself out of food soon enough. She let herself wallow in negativity for a few minutes, until her mind started spinning in a different direction. Where did all that food come from, anyway? What was it before it was poured into all these buckets and stored behind the net? She thought hard, trying to remember anything at all from her days at the Hussman's Place or the cafe that might be of use. Obviously, she'd never been involved in gathering, storing, or preparing food, but it had been around her for twenty years before now. Where had it all come from? Guru? The console beeped. Where do potatoes come from? The answer was swift. Potatoes come from the Solanum tuberosum plant. They are a starchy tuber that grows underground, connected to the roots of the plant. Aldi considered this for a moment. You're saying that potatoes grow from a plant? That's right. So does all food come from plants? Well, with the exception of meats, which come from slaughtered animals, most foods do come from plants that grow in the ground, yes. Yes, I know all about that, but where does a plant come from? She puzzled over this for some time before allowing herself to ask for the answer. Guru, as odd a program as she was, was not in the least judgmental about all these questions. Her answer, like usual, was both broad and literal. Plants originally evolved from single-celled organisms that grew in Earth's oceans. They have been growing on Earth's surface for 500,000 years. More specifically, a plant usually reproduces with seeds that it releases into the soil. From one seed, a whole new plant is born. Aldi tried to imagine this process. What do these seeds look like? Guru laughed. Aldi wrinkled her forehead. Why, they look quite familiar indeed. Most of your food rations are seeds. Aldi wrapped the blanket more tightly around herself, gathering her thoughts. Most of my food is seeds. Yes, I know that. Seeds that, if I put on the ground, will become new plants with more seeds and more food? In theory, yes. 
but you aren't sure? The conditions of life must be met for each seed and for the plant it produces. It needs a certain quantity of sunlight, followed by darkness, plus water and minerals. Aldi's ballooning hope was quickly deflated. So I can't use the seeds here in the space plane. It seemed like a colossal miscalculation. If every bucket of food had the potential to grow more buckets of food, why would nobody plan to take advantage of that somehow? What a wasted opportunity! But Guru wasn't ready to give up on the unstated idea just yet. She spoke again, drowning out the flood of negative thoughts cascading through Aldi's brain. Would you like to try? Aldi blinked several times, then smiled. Yes, Guru, I would, if it might be possible. Anyway, I need to do something. Yes, the AI responded. I believe your mental health would be much improved with a project on which to focus. It seems my jokes are not doing a sufficient job of keeping you positive. Aldi's throat made an unbidden sound. Oh gods, is that what you were doing? Chapter 21 It was clear from the beginning of the endeavor that Aldi would not have an easy time launching the little satellite into Mars's orbit. For starters, she lacked the ability to maneuver a radio-controlled device reliably through space, and that's the only way a satellite could get where it was going, since there was no programming to link it to Guru. After all, the UL team's failure to lean out the side of their spacecraft and toss their own device into orbit was nothing if not educational. More importantly, the secondary hatch that Marcel was meant to use to keep the cockpit pressurized as he completed his satellite-launching spacewalk hadn't yet been installed. It still sat, scorched, in a corner of the burned-out workshop. Without that hatch, there was no way to exit the space plane without completely depressurizing the entire craft. Was this a fatal issue? Not necessarily, but it did severely limit the time frame in which Aldi could don the spacesuit, exit the plane, perform her task, then re-enter and repressurize the cabin. She was tired of talking about it. If I cannot open the door and put the box outside the way you originally intended, then what can I do? You tell me. After the usual interlude of minutes passing, as the message flew to Earth and another flew back in its place, a chaotic and disappointing chorus of voices filled the space plane. Trinia's was the main voice, with a stubborn contingent of Madge, Seamus, and various engineers speaking over and around it. Ever since the Bachleben team had finally managed to contact their pilot midway through her flight to Mars, they'd been chiming in at every possible moment. The cacophony of voices bouncing off the walls of the space plane were exceptionally good for the lone pilot's morale, but the messages in the words weren't always what Aldi wanted to hear. In fact, the voices on the other end of her communication line could hardly agree amongst one another about the best course of action. Aldi listened hard to hear Trinia's message first. Aldi, you can absolutely suit up, open that hatch, and throw the payload out the door. It's pretty unlikely the same thing will happen to you that happened to the League astronaut. All the same, I don't like the risk. How many times can the same, simple task be attempted and failed? 
Aldi sighed and tuned into Madge's voice instead. You need to figure out the remote control. Guru could team up with you on that. There are sub-programs in the remote device that are extremely important for getting the satellite exactly where it must be. Another voice jumped out of the box, just as insistent as the others. Skip the satellite. Go straight to the comm relay on the surface of the planet. That's the whole point of this anyway. You can do a few upgrades and the satellite can be converted into a tiny landing module. Just stop for a minute. You are not talking to an engineer, remember? Aldi's voice was remonstrative. What you are saying is that instead of putting the satellite in orbit, the only satellite we have, I should rebuild it into a remote-controlled landing module, one that can land safely on Mars and then hammer a flag into the ground. Is that what you're telling me? Without warning, she laughed. That's absurd, and it still doesn't fix the original problem. The AI interrupted. Aldi, would you like to edit that last message before I send it? No, she shouted, irritated again. Just send it. Very well. There it has been sent. Your message should arrive to Earth in approximately 15.72 minutes. Good. They clearly need some more time to think this through. Seamus and Madge teamed up for the next communique, which came through Aldi's console some 20 minutes later. There is one prepared satellite unit aboard your ship. Seamus's voice came through on the console. You can find it in the tool cupboard. It's a wee little thing about the size of a watermelon. Another voice broke through. She won't know what a watermelon is, you dolt. What? Why, whatever. Let me try that again, Aldi. The satellite is a small, cube-shaped computer with a solar panel attached across one side. The whole thing could sit in your hands. You need to find that, and then we'll talk about getting it where it needs to be. Send word when you're ready. Please. The space plane went silent, and Aldi tethered herself in the far aft of the cabin, ruminating. She liked to float next to the food supplies. They grounded her somewhat, made her feel safe. Though all the stores were dried, she still could smell the fruit, and it was comforting. Like having a beautiful plate of food nearby while on her couch in the caverns. Food was her anchor to humanity and its particular brand of reality. Without a word, Guru began playing very soft strands of Psychelos's epitaph. Normally, Aldi would have been annoyed at Guru for making a decision on her behalf, but the music helped soothe her into a more appropriate mood. Not bothering to reprimand the AI, Aldi untethered herself and swam gracefully to the other end of the space plane until her hand hit upon the handle of the tool closet. She gripped the cool metal and tugged, her other hand pushing against the wall to ensure physics went the way she needed. The closet popped open, revealing a myriad of little tools, electronic components, and various spare materials for impromptu construction and repairs. She sighed, let go of the cabinet and used the wall to push herself into a spin as the flutes began to play out, announcing the midpoint of the song. Almost imperceptibly, Guru increased the volume. When Aldi began to swim rhythmically to the melody, the AI spoke. The words have been sung in their original Greek. There are not many, 
but in your language, they mean, while you live, shine, have no grief at all, life exists only for a short while, and time demands his due. The only other words on the inscription were not part of the song, but meant to explain the monument. She went quiet again, and Aldi was free to enjoy the lilt, the ebb and the flow of the music. She remembered the last time she had sat down with Linus, and played a game of chess, start to finish, without any interruptions. They played slowly, as Aldi preferred, so she could more fully visualize the situation of both players and all their pieces. As so often happened during a game, the board that sat between Linus and herself contained three individual fronts. On the primary front, Aldi's queen blocked Linus's king into a corner. On the corner diagonally across from that area of play, two lines of pawns languished in a standoff. Finally, at the center of it all, a black knight stood ready to devour a white knight, or vice versa, except that to do so would set off a chain reaction in which black ultimately lost a small contingent of valuable soldiers. Conversely, Aldi was hesitant to capture the offending Black Knight with her own piece, on account that doing so would leave her own king undefended from a crucial angle. Neither player had an obvious advantage anywhere, which meant every move at this stage either maintained the status quo or blasted apart everything at once. Aldi's intrinsic nature was revealed in such moments. She was inclined to protect what she had built, and often moved these games to stalemates in an effort to do so. The difference, this time, was that she had come to realize it. Yet, she was not able to extrapolate so far in the future of the game to ensure a win following a decisive move that broke both ranks apart. She asked her opponent for advice. What do you do if you can't see a direct way to win? Linus laughed. I usually don't see a way to win until I win, or lose trying. So you just play anyway? Yes, I play anyway. He shrugged his broad, thin shoulders. I play for fun, knowing that I am not particularly gifted at the game. I make moves that seem reasonable, and look for ways to win, or at least to avoid losing, every time the other player makes a move. He laughed again at the expression on Aldi's face. Does that answer disappoint you? Well, yes. I thought you must have a plan. Don't the others have a plan when they play? Honestly, I do not think they do. Only the very best players, ones who have been playing the game since they were children, are able to do that. It took a moment for Aldi to absorb this information. It frustrated her. Then why do we play at all? she asked. Why don't we just throw a die and see which lands on a larger number? The young man's cheeks reddened a little, but he was used to all these random moments of disillusionment in her adopted world. More than anyone else, he understood. Well, he ventured, that would not be very satisfying, would it? I may not know exactly what will happen in this chess game, but I'm still able to think about different moves and weigh their merits against one another. The game does require that we think, not just roll dice as in a children's game. 
we must participate, and the end is a result of our participation. Win, lose, or neither. Usually neither, I suppose. Not always. Annoyed, Aldi finally made a move. She barged ahead, taking the Black Knight with her own white one in an anarchic move that felt appropriate to a game so lacking a clear outcome. It infuriated her that she could not see past the next three or four moves. The answer existed, and yet she could not grasp it. She had to grope along, the path illuminated just far enough to allow her to deal with the here and now. Linus had won that game. So many unknowns, and yet only unknown because of the limits of the human brain. A thought occurred to her suddenly. This is why I have Guru, and the communicator, to focus more brains on the same problem. With the help of her comrades, Aldi prepared the satellite for launch, step by painstaking step. Not all of her questions were answered yet, but she had to move forward regardless. Chapter 22 If Aldi were to go through with the miniature landing module idea, it would not be the first time a potential colonizer had tried to physically pierce the surface of Mars with a flagpole. Months earlier, even before the United League had fumbled its attempt to plant satellites in the planet's orbit, a self-named privateer who called himself Admiral Jack had made his own bid for the Red Planet. Having made his money mining water at the poles of the moon, Admiral Jack was a jolly but hot-headed and egotistical genius who built a spaceship completely by himself and launched it into space soon after news of the tiny Martian colonial wave reached his lunar estate. It took no more than six months from the first news report to get Jack airborne. Admiral Jack, born a mere Sylvester Tweed, would have bought Mars outright if the planet had a bank transit number and someone to run its accounts. He found it much more thrilling, however, to put on his proverbial cowboy boots and hat and wrangle it with his own two hands. The Admiral came well equipped, having had a reasonable amount of experience traversing the 384,400 kilometers of space that lay between Earth and his home on the moon. He not only had several micro-satellites on hand, but remote drones large enough to take a passenger if necessary. A pile of Admiral Jack's all-natural Moon Water Corp. flags were at the ready. After joining the queue in orbit around Mars, the Admiral put out radio communique to his two orbiting companions, hoping for some friendly but competitive banter. It was of no use. The UL crew ignored him, and the other tiny ship and its occupant seemed quite deceased. Nevertheless, he sent a final message to both, wishing them luck and apologizing for the fact that he was about to beat the lot of them to the prize. Jack was an old-fashioned type, despite his off-Earth residence, and he thoroughly believed in the authority of a flag to claim any uninhabited patch of land, or ice, for that matter. His goal was to embark upon the surface of Mars with his little carrier drone and a single flag, and pop out in a sealed, pressurized suit to hammer it in. 
If that went as planned, he'd repeat the trip as many times as necessary to map out the surface up close and hammer company flags at every spot that looked lucrative. Quick, simple, and effective. He didn't know why the others bothered with satellite technology. Sure, the law-minded Earthsiders were busy hashing out the details of space colonization, but he knew from experience and history that if someone laid claim and occupied that claim as a citizen, the next person to come along would yield to prior ownership. It was a matter of physics, like all things. Sure, competitors would copy his attempt at other locations, but he'd get the biggest chunk of Mars for himself, first. As for setting up camp in his soon-to-be-mapped Martian lands, that was a little more delicate. A tent of the Admiral's own design was aboard his sleek little rocket, a temporary abode constructed of the extremely lightweight and strong rare metals that one of his company's subsidiaries mined from several moon craters. This journey was the ideal chance to test out the technology and serve a larger purpose simultaneously. Jack's nerves jangled when he thought about camping on Mars, but he focused primarily on drone reconnaissance to soothe his mind. The dozen drone team was employed right away to get a good scope of the land from up close and start mapping into a networked program controlled by the Admiral. They dropped down from orbit and zoomed past the isolated continent of Hellas. Admiral Jack wasn't here to waste time claiming a mere island. It was Elysium that interested him more than any other mapped region of Mars, so that's exactly where the drone fleet flew. Elysium was the second largest of the Martian volcanic regions, with many darkly colored craters that reminded Jack of the most profitable parts of the moon. With a little luck, those rusty, mineral-rich patches of ground just might be the source of Jack's next mining venture. He licked his lips as the craters appeared on his remote viewing screen. It was just a matter of picking the right pockmark. 